We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm joined always by my co-host, Nick Turchin. Today, we're breaking down the Giants' pass catchers, both the wide receiver corpse and the tight ends. As always, our analysis will be based partly in the All-22 Coaches film, also in analytics, and also the eye test. Earlier this offseason, we tackled rookie quarterback Daniel Jones while diving into aspects of Pat Shermer's offensive scheme. On a later podcast, we will go even deeper in the schematics of what Shermer is trying to do on the offensive side of the ball. If you're just catching up, We've also dedicated off-season podcasts to breaking down James Betcher's defensive scheme, the defensive front, and the interior offensive line. If you want to catch up on any of those podcasts, you can find us on iTunes by typing in Big Blue Banter, New York Giants podcast. We're also on Spreaker, and a few other. And there's a few other ways to find us. Um, of course, as always, if you do enjoy the show, please do us a favor and help us build the show by just simply logging on to the iTunes uh, podcast app on your iPad, on your iPhone or any other app you use, and just rate, subscribe, and download our podcast. That's all we ask, three things, and it will help us grow and make an even better show. But for now, without further ado, let's jump right into the Giants 2019 wide receiver court. And we're going to start with young Shep, Sterling Shepard, who is coming off a full 16-game season health-wise, the most yards per catch in his career, and the most snaps he's seen as a boundary wide receiver since joining the New York Giants. The expectation is that Shepard will be used interchangeably with Golden Tate in the slot in 2019, but spend the majority of his snaps on the boundary. Nick, during our All-22 review of the 2018 regular season games, you once referred to Sterling Shepard as the best route runner on the roster. If I can promise you that you won't receive any death threats from the Odell Beckham Jr. fan club, would you care to confirm what you saw 
Also, from what you've seen from Shepard, do you believe he can step into and excel in a larger role as a boundary wide receiver in 2019? Yeah, that's <laughs> – sorry. I like the Odell Beckham fan club remark. Thank you. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, um, uh, Sterling, Shepard, uh, definitely. I think um, from, from 2018 tape, you see a player that – he excels in all parts of the route stem, um, including the release. Uh, what I didn't notice when I go went back and watched again, he has a really good first step, and he's got pretty good twitch. And within his first step, he's, he gains a lot of ground. He actually chews up grass pretty well. So when he faces off coverage, he kind of gets there very quickly, and he sells that he's going deep often pretty well, even if he's not quote unquote you know a deep threat. Uh, and he's some and he's someone who I think plays faster than his speed. So so yeah, I definitely think that he can um, he can. We say sell this year. I think he can. I think he could win on the outside last year, um, and that's going to be kind of his biggest, his his biggest looks, his biggest areas improvement will be winning on the outside and run and run after catch and in in those kind of scenarios. I think I think he can excel there for sure. Um, I think that the key to understand is that um, for him, Shermer uses X and Z wide receivers virtually interchangeably. Um, going back and watching a lot of games like I have in the last 10 days, just specifically in the wide receiver grouping, I didn't realize how much o Odell Beckham played X and and um, Shepard himself played X on the outside, the lone X wide receiver to both the short side of the field. Uh, and then if they flipped it, they ran formation in the boundary to the wide side of the field. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think he he can and he will. His areas within that where he's going to want to improve a little bit on our play strength. Uh, within the route stem and holding that that red line against against defensive backs, but you know we're talking about minor details here. Um, you know he's a very good player, and I think that is uh, I think that's gonna that's only gonna get better. Yeah, I mean Shepard had a really interesting 2018 season in my mind, Nick, because he did expand his repertoire in the deep passing game. I was breaking it down earlier using PFF uh, analytics, and Shepard actually saw 17 deep targets, only four fewer, and these are talking about uh, targets charted as you know balls that travel 20 plus yards at least in the air 17 targets only four fewer than Odell Beckham Jr and at the same time over 26 percent of the Giants total deep targets on the season obviously the Giants were a team that you know didn't light up the deep target uh, totals there they you know they didn't take too many chances but at the same time you didn't see this as much and it's something we talked about Nick last uh you know last preseason we talked about how Pat part of Pat Shermer's scheme is going to be to use the slot uh, receiver more on more vertical routes, but some of these routes came when he was lined up on the boundary as well. So I thought that was very interesting that that kind of was a new addition to his repertoire. And, you know, even though Manning didn't always take advantage of the vertical slots that he ran, he was, he was used more uh, often in that regard. And also Shepard led the giants with eight drop passes, a number that has to come down if he's going to obviously increase his target share this season. And he had, and he did eclipse the triple digit target mark last season, but you know, he didn't, break into that Odo Beckham range of 150, 165 plus targets. Um, he also racked up 47 first downs, something I found really interesting because that was just four fewer than Beckham. And he ran 17 fewer, uh, and I'm sorry, he had 17 fewer total targets than Beckham and just four fewer first downs. So Shepard, you know, he was the clear cut number one receiver for Eli Manning throughout spring OTAs, where he saw the most targets before missing some practice time with a minor injury. I believe he'll continue to serve as this role for as long as Manning is the starter. And he will finish 2019, in my opinion, with the most targets of any player on this Giants roster. The Giants are obviously banking on big things from Shepard based on the way they structured his contract. Um, the Giants structured it so that Shepard's base salaries for the 2020 and 2021 seasons are guaranteed. In other words, 
Shepard's a mortal lock to be on the roster for the next three seasons, barring uh, any kind of major and unfortunate long-term injury. And, you know, by guaranteeing those base salaries for those seasons, Giants have deferred a portion of the salary cap hit they would have received after upgrading Shepard's 2019 salary. It's not an uncommon practice. We've seen this from some of the best-managed teams in the NFL. From a salary cap standpoint, it's something common that the Philadelphia Eagles have used under general manager Harry Roseman. And I think, you know, they're kind of prepping him, Nick, for this number one wide receiver role. And as far as I'm concerned, he's someone who can step right into it and be that most targeted wide receiver on the roster. I know it hasn't shown up in the raw stats for Shepard, you know, over his first few seasons with the Giants. And some people will base it on totally his raw stats. But for me, it goes beyond that. And some of the things that you touched on, Nick, are exactly why I believe he can step into this role. You know, sometimes you got to break it all down and look at the actual game tape and see what he's doing on a per-route basis. Uh, and sometimes that can overtake those raw stat totals. And obviously Shepard has also been a wide receiver, as I mentioned earlier, who's been a little bit, you know, marred by – some of his seasons have been marred a little bit by injuries, played through a lot of injuries, uh, a lot of ankle stuff. And if he can kind of overcome that in 2019, I think that will also play a big role um, in his progression, Nick. But I also wanted to touch – on the next receiver in the wide receiver corps, the number two guy, at least I believe, for the 2019 season, and that's Golden Tate. Nick, there was a lot of skepticism surrounding the Golden Tate signing. Um, I believe that was based on his age and fit for some of these people, and also because of the timing, because it came right after the Odell Beckham Jr. trade. Some fans believe the Giants already had a slot receiver in Shepard, and they needed a bigger boundary guy to pair with him. Meanwhile, Tate seems to me like the perfect fit from, for Shermer's actual scheme. From a skill set standpoint, Tate leads the NFL in forced missed tackles among all wide receivers since 2012. And quite frankly, it's not even close. He had the most forced missed tackles among all receivers in 2018, despite obviously his rocky season where he was traded midseason to a new team and forced to learn a new playbook and develop a new rapport with a quarterback he's never played with. Um, he's also one of the NFL's most leading wide receivers in yards after the catch in that, in that time frame. So in your mind, Nick, can the Giants utilize – both Shepard and Tate. And at the same time, it's a two-part question for you, Nick. Is he still a high-level receiver who, you know, who is instead stymied by changing offensive schemes and quarterbacks, but somebody who you, with the Eagles, but somebody who you believe can kind of regain his form with the Giants in 2019? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And look, I get why people kind of think that it's another slot receiver and, and on paper, that kind of doesn't sound right. And you pull up his measurables, and he's 5'11", and he's 199. He seems like another slot guy. And what we kind of set up is that, you know, Shepard is maybe a little bit can kind of play on the outside just as more. But you think, kind of what Dan's saying, you have to think about what's what the, the wide receivers being asked to do, not putting frames and, you know, basically structures on what we think they are without kind of looking at what is actually happening. And the biggest thing for Golden Tate, and I didn't, I didn't realize this until I went back to, you know, basically six or seven games in 2018, um, his ability to win early in the route is really good. Um, so on a short routes in the quick game, he's, you know, you got to say he's top 10, 15 type route runner in that short game and his ability in multiple releases against all different types of press coverage, you know, soft, hard press with jam, his, his upper body control to his, basically his, his ability to play through contact uh, is really good. And then you mentioned his, his run after catch potential. And what's really interesting about that is when you watch the tape, you break it down, it's kind of interesting. His twitch from a static position, meaning if he catches a route that terminates in space, so a screen or a, a curl route and Hank in the Hank concept, his his ability to make the first guy miss is really good. You know, his ability to, to evade the first defender that way. When he's running a shallow crosser, 
it's solid, but he can misjudge guys on, on, on occasion. And partially, I think that's because of his age. He's kind of, you know, he may be used to doing things that he couldn't do, you know, six and seven years ago. Um, but it, it's so it's, it's why I'm framing it this way is it's not just you're not it's not just to show and have Sherman run a bajillion shell shell crosses and he goes to the side with two to the two vertical side and it's a constant clear out concept. I wouldn't think of it that way. I think for him it's it's a guy who's a bona fide jet uh, jet motion sweep guy, a threat, uh, a bona fide swing for, and then to continue on to a swing route from there and then a bona fide wide receiver in the screen game. Um, and then a guy who's a, just a good enough blocker for his size. He's just feisty enough. And someone, this is the biggest stat that, or the biggest aspect that I would think of. He is, I, I want to see if I can rank him this way. He's one of the more dominant third down wide receivers I've seen in this, in this last crop of wide receivers. And let's say I watched 15 this off season. Um, you know, you had guys like Austin Humphreys down in, 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 uh, in Tampa Bay become a go-to for Jameis Winston. The way I can put it here is Golden Tate became the go-to for three different quarterbacks in one year. Now, granted, he did have that already with, um, you know, he had that rapport already with, with, with the Detroit quarterback whose name is slipping me right now. That's how, that's how today's going for me. Uh, but also, <laughs> yeah, obviously Stafford. Um, so, so he, he did it there. He did it in a short amount of time with Carson Wentz. And I didn't realize this. I, I assumed that, you know, I read all about the struggles in, in the season that, um, that uh, offensive coordinator grow is having with, with getting Tate in the offense. What I saw, you know, three or four games in against the giants and other, and other players and other, and other defenses, he did pretty well in terms of incorporating him in the, in the third down mix. And then in the playoffs, in the playoffs, you know, he was not maybe the go-to guy because that's a very deep bench of go-to receivers for the Eagles, including tight ends. Uh, so, but he's, he was definitely in the mix and, and was a key part of what they were doing there. So for me, it's, 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 it's reliability, not just because he develops a rapport and, and X, Y, and Z, it's, it's actually his ability to win early. And I think that, you know, you're going to see that and that's going to be a big part of what, um, a big part of making the Giants offense efficient in 2019. It's interesting you mentioned all that, Nick, because a lot of where the skepticism comes with Tate is, you know, can he play? within this scheme and where, where does it fit? And if you look at it from that traditional standpoint, you need two boundaries and a slot, and these guys have to be perfect fits for each of those positions. I, I can understand the skepticism, but like you said, more so what you have to do, at least in my opinion, Nick, and you kind of did a great job of breaking this down, is look at where he fits within Shermer's scheme because that's what it's really all about. They're going to try to utilize his skill set, and in my opinion, his skill set really fits that Shermer's scheme. And I mentioned the first down stat was Sterling Shepard when we just broke him down. You know, he just had – almost, you know, four fewer from having the same amount of first downs as Beckham despite having, you know, fewer targets. And you look at Golden Tate's 2018 season, and he had 23 first downs to the Lions in just seven games. If you prorate that over the course of a full 16-game season, he would have had the most first down catches on the Lions. And that includes, you know, the breakout season from Kenny Galladay. So he has, is somebody who has done, done an excellent job in that regard, like you said, on third downs and creating first downs for his team. But also, at the same time, He's someone who has in the past played on the boundary. I mean, in 2016, which some people believe was his best season with the Lions, he took the major the vast majority of snaps uh, on the boundary. I'm looking at it right now, 647 on the boundary and only 213 in the slot, according to PFF. So we're looking at a player who has in the past played on that in that in that uh, boundary role if they need him to, the Giants will. And I think again, we both believe that Shepard and him can and take can hold their own on the boundary. So again, you should look at it more, in my opinion, as as, as two interchangeable guys uh, in that role, rather than, you know, one guy has to play here, one guy has to play the other. Um, and I think you, you agree with me on that, on Nick. But let's move on to another player who I know, you know, 
me and you have disagreed on at times in the past, and I'll explain my my version of why I'm why I have some optimism regarding this player after you get into it, Nick. But we're talking about Corey Coleman, uh, Nick. During OTAs, Coleman took the most snaps of any Giants wide receiver uh, in that number three wide receiver role with the first team offense, besides Sterling Shepard and Golden Tate. You know, the coach speak at OTAs is simple. It's that it's this. It's now that Coleman has had a full season and a full off season with the New York Giants. He knows the scheme and he's playing faster. In the past, we know this to be true in the NFL with wide receiver development. You look at wide receivers and they make the biggest jump. They tend to make the biggest jump in year three. Why is that? It's because they're so much more familiar with the scheme. They make a small jump in year two, definitely a more a considerable jump from that rookie season, but they tend to make that big jump in year two or three because, again, they're playing faster. Now, this is all good and well if it actually can translate for the Giants. The Giants are hoping that, you know, considering he just joined the team midseason uh, in 2018, now is going to be the time, and or moving forward is going to be the time. Nick, I remember watching Coleman dominate at the Big 12 uh, level, and it wasn't just, you know, with Baylor, and it wasn't just as a deep ball receiver. For me, it was mostly what he could do after the catch. Now, at the same time, Nick, I've been fooled by players like him before. I was high on John Ross, a receiver who at Washington was, you know, billed by some people as just a deep threat. But I saw a guy who was creating a lot of separation at, uh, in his route running and making a lot of big plays after the catch. Now, in an offensive scheme like the Giants, Nick, that mostly prioritizes, or I'm sorry, that prioritizes yards at the catch, can the former 2016 number 15 overall pick, and that's what Coleman was, find his niche with the NFL with the Giants, or is he simply a player who you believe is uh, more smoke than fire. Yeah, he's a Corey Coleman. Um, it's interesting when you kind of go from Tate to Coleman um, because their profiles are different, but their measurables are very, very close. So Coleman's 5'11", 194. Tate's called 5'11", 199. Their 40-yard times are 4.37 for the pro day at Coleman and 4.42 for uh, Golden Tate. What you see on tape is is very different between the two of them. Um, you know, you mentioned him at Baylor with with Bryles. You know, he was able to do a lot of things. And and one of the biggest point the biggest point you made is that with the ball in his hands, he is way faster than running a route. That is a thousand percent true. With the ball in his hands, he actually has better, way better play strength than he does running routes. Running routes to him. Um, I went back to his 2016 tape, on to basically four games of his last year for the targets. He only had like. 12 targets last year. So crazily low number. Uh, you know, his he's got here's the upside. The upside is against off coverage, he has he can chew up grasp pretty well. He's got subtle wiggle in his stem as he gets to the secondary release, as he gets to that basically as he arrives to that defender, that defensive back. His fourth and fifth stride speed and space is called solid. I would say it's nothing close to a 437 type level. Um, and his his run after catch potential is, is definitely there. So he starts to, to look a little bit like Golden Tate. The downside, though, the worst part, versus hard press, he is virtually a non-factor. Um, yeah. This was consistent from 2016 on. I mean, in the NFL, if you watch the Pittsburgh game from that year, big physical corners, I mean, he's, he's not he's a total non-factor. Uh, suddenness in his release is way too inconsistent for a player of his talent. This guy has a lot of athletic ability. And overall, you really don't see much of a plan, even in 2018, to attack coverage. Um, so what I mean by that is when he runs against outside leverage defensive backs, he is a straight-line runner. He does not attack the leverage by running towards the outside, outside by stemming his route to the outside, which basically kind of puts the defensive back in a bind. So – 
I understand how how the, his play speed could pick up because he understands the system more. But I'm still way back looking for these fundamentals to improve over two to three years in the NFL. Now, this gets into an interesting conversation about coaching and taking to coaching. You know, if you right. watch the if you watch the end of the Hard Knocks when he gets basically thrown off by by trade, right from the the Browns, you know that that coaching staff is incredibly frustrated with him. You know, he claims that was kind of not telling the whole story, and that is and that is what it is because you know you go back to 2016, which is a different coaching staff. So he's had a lot of coaching staffs in basically four years, right? Um, you know, the details for the entire wide receiver group is are borderline terrible. You can read from their stances what the plays are going to be. Whether it's going to be a you know um, a, a, a wide receiver screen to a run every every snap the wide receiver stances look different, including his. So I understand how part of that is chalked up to coaching. I think part of it kind of comes into how much he wants to be a professional to find these details to get into these details because, again, going back to Golden Tate, it's an interesting contrast. Tate is a, what an aging wide receiver who just got paid a lot of money. I would say Tate's athletic ability overall is probably just a little bit less than Corey Coleman's Coleman's ability to make a roster and get consistent targets is going to be his ability to, to for those details in his release and his route running, because that's, that's what stands the test of time to be able to create separation. Yep. What you saw last year was not that against, um, against Indianapolis, a team that plays a lot of cover two, cover two variations, let's call it. He's a non-factor. You know, he needs to get to that point. So he absolutely can get to that point. He shows the potential too, by the way. He shows a chop white uh, release. He shows all types of things that you want to see. It's just not nearly consistent enough. If it gets there, his upside, I think, is still short of a golden, is way short of a golden Tate, um, just because his, I think his overall speed is not really there. And But we'll see where that goes. I think the more important thing for him is finding that floor and the, and the floor will be in the details. And, you know, maybe maybe this is the time for for him in, you know, in New York. And it's he's gone through a, a lot of stuff, basically. And he has some resiliency in his, in his background where he's, you know, he grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood. So, you know, I think that he, he he's a survivor and I think he can do it. It's just, you know, kind of hope that he does. But until that tape changes, it's tough for me to change. And, and we'll see what happens. And I totally understand that, Nick. Based on what you've seen so far, and that's all you can really base it on, he's not the kind of player you can get excited about, you know, and optimistic about making an impact. For me, the way I see it and the why, the reason why I can find that silver lining, and again, I'm not going all in on Corey Coleman. I'm just saying he's a player who I saw a ton of potential from when I evaluated him at Baylor and a player who I thought, you know, was going to be an excellent receiver in the NFL. And my whole belief is that it's possible, Nick, and it's not something I'm going to guarantee, but it's possible that he's a player who simply just didn't have the mindset you need to be a successful NFL receiver for the first three seasons of his career. Now, two with the with the Browns, obviously that didn't work out. Injuries played a factor there. He was injured during his time there. And again, it may not just be the injuries, but at the same time, when you hear something like that from him, you know, uh, you know, you don't hear the full side of the story, you know, with, with regards to my riff with the Browns coaches app and what led to the trade. Part of me wants to say it's, it's a player making excuse. The other part of me wants to say that coaching staff had Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson, neither of who's employed in the NFL anymore. Hugh Jackson, to me, is one of the biggest clown head coaches I've ever seen. And that's why I'll describe him. I mean, I won't say the same about Haley because I like Haley's scheme and I like, you know, what he's done from a schematic standpoint. But it doesn't really seem, from what I've, what I've, you know, what I've observed, that he's much of a player's coach either, or much of a guy who can connect with these players either. So, for me, I think it's possible he's found a little bit of a home with the Giants. He's changed his mindset. He's realized that listen, I don't have a scholarship in the NFL anymore. For starters, 
that was proven by the fact that he was dumped by the Browns and then dumped by the Bills. And, you know, the Patriots didn't find room for him on their practice squad and the Giants snapped him up. At the same time, I feel like it's also possible that he realized, listen, Dave Gettleman's not the kind of general manager who's going to give me a scholarship either. I think that's been proven pretty clear um, by some of Gettleman's, all of Gettleman's decisions as becoming general manager. So this has to feel like a last chance for Coleman uh, to me, Nick. And the fact that he is running with that first team over Latimer says something to me. And again, I'm just going to bank, not bank, but I'm just going to use my opt. I'm going to bank my optimism at least. And, and again, it's not the most optimism in the world, but it's some optimism on the fact that he is a fit in the sense that you, you talked about a little bit is after the catch ability. And while obviously he needs to play faster and, 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 you know, attack cover too, and all these, there's a lot of ways that he needs to improve his game. I do have some faith that he can he can kind of refine that skill set that made him special at Baylor. And again, he was not a one trick pony at Baylor with the deep game. And if he can refine that, if he can regain that form and translate it to the NFL level with the Giants, I do believe he can be an impact player on this team this year. We'll find out, you know, obviously soon enough, or we're getting closer and closer to the season. But to me, I'm not ready to give up on Corey Coleman just yet. And I, I totally understand why you may be skeptical based on what you've seen so far. But I've seen I've seen these cases happen before where, you know, light just turns on for a player like this at a position that is a lot more mental than people realize. Uh, so we'll, we'll find out as the season goes, Nick. But we're going to turn things over to another wide receiver on the roster who I know you're very, very high on compared to the rest of, rest of uh, people based on what, what we've seen so far from him. And you probably won't be surprised to hear this, Nick, but that he was also the second highest graded Giants wide receiver, according to Pro Football Focus, at least in 2018, over Sterling Shepard, behind Odell Beckham, as far as the grades go. And that's Cody Latimer. And in my opinion, we saw a little bit of what he was capable in week 17 when he kind of did a really good job of helping the Giants stay in that game against the Dallas Cowboys. Obviously, they lost on a final uh, touchdown pass from Dak Prescott to Cole Beasley in a game that, you know, they were very close to winning. But in that Week 17 game, I thought we saw a little bit of what Latimer was capable of. His 2018 season with the Giants was his first season. And in my opinion, it was marred by injury. He was placed on injured reserve, returned later in the season, didn't really have a chance to get into a groove, uh, but still made his impact in that Week 17 game. Do you see Latimer eventually emerging as the number three boundary receiver in 11 personnel over Coleman? Because listen, Nick, I think this is totally within the realm of possibilities. The, pers- the player who's lining up as the number three in OTAs doesn't really mean much. Things are going to change. Things could change fast at training camp. We've seen it happen over and over. So, in your mind, do you have that same kind of like you know reserved optimism I may have for Coleman, uh, but for Latimer? Yeah, I would. I would call it more than reserved optimism, just because sure. um, he, from the tape last year, from his tape in, and from his time in Denver, and, and I've gone over this on a couple pieces actually at the end of the season, and and, I, and if you have. If you have a three by one formation and you have that that X Y receiver who's to the short side of the field, that guy has to be able to win in isolation. Um, what I mean by that is he's often faced uh, in man on man on that cover corner who has to cover who has to cover him in a smaller amount of space. The Giants' most consistent boundary wide receiver X Y receiver you can make the case it was Benny Fowler last year. It's not a knock on Odell Beckham. He wasn't really here as much, but his ability to win in isolation consistently, you know, Beckham didn't do that. And he didn't do that in times when they, when they, at key parts of the game, which was very, very odd for Beckham. So they missed a guy like Cody Latimer, who does it in a way that is not necessarily super flashy. 
you know, he has kind of a limited route tree. He has speed and he has his body size and he has his background basically, which gives him the ability to have really good body control at the, at, at the, at the catch point. Um, he's the best guy doing that. Uh, we're going back and watching the tape again. The, be the best fade wide receiver the Giants had last year was Benny Fowler. That's not a good sign. No offense to Fowler. Yeah. Um, Latimer, Latimer can, and did that a, a few times. It's just his overall size and body control is, is better than, than, than the other guys in the receiver for this one trait. It gets into a conversation a little bit of if this trait is valued as much because you've seen in the last two years larger size wide receivers um, that hang their hat on basically boxing out at the point of attack. You've seen them not get drafted. You see them get overlooked. The thing that right. I think – gives Latimer something a little more of an edge is the overall speed and his ability to win on slants as well. So as though his route, although his route tree is not unbelievably expansive and, you know, he doesn't have, you know, he is, he sinks his hips, but he's not, I wouldn't call him massively flexible in his lower half. Um, you know, you, he can hang his hat on beating many corners that have over the years gotten smaller and smaller and more agile. Um, he can beat them in two ways. He can hang his hat on two things, which I think is kind of enough for a wide receiver. Does it mean he's going to be an unbelievably, you know, unbelievable production? No, but within this wide receiver group, I think you got to have, if you're not going to have a dominant player, you got to have guys that play that are versatile enough, just versatile enough, but also just good enough to win in very, very specific roles. Because I think that's what they were kind of missing. If you take a guy like Latimer out and you take a guy like OBJ out, at you know at the in the last three to four games of the season um so i'm i think that he could you know it, it, a big part of it's going to be his health you know that was a, an issue last year i believe i can't remember exactly but i believe it was an issue in denver too as well um you know i do i do see him being the number three um as particularly in the red zone uh i just thinking about who would even be a better red zone target than him on the team um believe it or not it'd be between fowler and yes fowler and tate at that point it should be anyway. I would put him as the number one target there in the red zone, and 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 definitely see him as that uh, getting the third amount of snaps in that group. Yeah, I mean, Latimer is definitely an interesting player for me too. I I like what I've seen as well. Um, at least from that from the limited snaps we saw from him uh, during the 2018 season with the Giants, and you know he rounds out a group of a top four wide receivers on this depth chart in my opinion. At least as it will shake out for 2019, that were all top 60 draft picks in the NFL, which I find interesting from the standpoint of you know. He has the talent to play at this level, and we'll see if that can translate. To, we'll see if it can translate to a stronger wide receiver courts than people believe the Giants will have at least for the 2019 season. But you know, we're moving on to a number five on the depth chart, who some believe can move all the way up to number three on the Giants' depth chart. Um, that's kind of how the offseason buzz works. There's not much going on, so when a player stands out as much as this receiver did during OTAs. He starts to gain some traction with the fan base, and no Giants player had more buzz during OTAs than rookie Darius Sladen. You know, went from having a case of the drops during that rookie minicamp to earning multiple call-outs from head coach Pat Shermer, who referred to him at the end of OTAs as the most improved player on the roster. In addition to that, by the end of OTAs, Slayton began working in briefly with the first-team offense. He started seeing some first-team reps. Nick, my question for you is we touched on Slayton during our rookie break, uh, our podcast breaking down the rookies, but and I'm not sure if you've seen any more of him since on tape. There's obviously limited tape out there from his days at Auburn, but is there a path to playing time that you see for Slayton in 2019 outside of special teams? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, he's an interesting fifth rounder. Uh, 
because just from for context perspective, the the Auburn offense had a much more prolific prolific 2017 than it did 2018. So, you know, from Stidham on down, there was high chatter at the end of the of the 17 season, and not nearly as much chatter coming out uh, of the 18 season. So he's six foot one, 190. It's not that far from Cody Latimer. Uh, 4.39 40 yard. Um, and it's interesting about him, and you kind of have to mention his 32 point 32 and three quarters inch arms. Um, he's kind of gangly. So he's got gangly speed, but his athletic movement-wise, he's, he's, he's a really good glider, and he kind of comes to speed pretty quickly as a glider. So kind of has almost, if you watch Prashard Perriman on tape uh, for the Cleveland Browns, they don't look that dissimilar kind of moving through the middle. Um, I did go back and watch some more of a 17 tape uh, just to really kind of get a, get a sense and a feel for his upside. Uh, I When I first described him on this podcast, when I first went, went through this. I don't think I gave him enough credit for his ability to win early in the down and his ability and his releases and his suddenness in, in his releases. I saw an improvement throughout his 2018 season, but back in 17, he was actually doing it against press coverage. It was a little bit better than I realized. I graded him pretty low there. I think he's more of a mid-range. Um, he, he's not a super twitched up receiver. His vertical speed comes on his third and fourth stride. So kind of like a little bit how we've described Corey Coleman, he does his best or, or has his best speed versus off coverage. But where I think is interesting is although he didn't have a ton of tools in his toolbox at Auburn in terms of gaining separation through technicals, through technical fundamentals, which we've talked about, um, he was still able to take the top off of defenses pretty well, which the Giants do not have a guy on the roster really to right. do this, this type of speed. That becomes kind of critical. So this now backs up into a conversation about offense and I think it was a big part of what was missing from the Philadelphia Eagles offense that Golden Tate was a part of last year. Um, and I think that Pat Shermer likes – they run very, very similar offenses. I think Pat Shermer sees kind of the same type of issue and wants that type of – I think it's why he was drafted in the fifth round. I almost think it was a, a draft for need um, versus versus the best player. I'm not saying he wasn't. I don't have a draft board like that. But just he actually fits a need that I think would make his – off would make this offense work a little bit. And whenever you're running a three-level flood concept, the Giants run – a lot of three-level flood. If you have a guy who's running the vertical part of that three-level flood into the into the back third, the top third of the of the level, if that guy can actually take the middle field safety, or if it's a you know if it's cover two, taking that safety his side and the man underneath him with him, at least have a real threat that can open up things. That's bona fide thing can actually open up things underneath for the intermediate concept. So it's not that Shermer wants to throw more vertical routes. I just think that it means that for to Shermer's sweet spot is 11 to 18 yards uh, for the way everything hits kind of for the Giants. I think that that area can definitely help him. His biggest issues, um, and I, we got into this a little bit in the last podcast, but physical corners give him trouble. Um, his frame, like I said, a six foot one, 190. He needs an NFL weight room, and he needs, and I, this is why I think it's kind of cool, he needs a guy like Cody Latimer to kind of, and even guys like Golden Tate, and even guys like Benny Fowler, guys that play very well through contact, he needs to get around them more. And the more he gets around professionals like that, um, you know, I'm not sure how much individual time really is at, is at the college level with Auburn. You know, Malzahn's a great coach, but it's one of those things where I think the details that he needs can be. If you if you took this player and added details, I think you'd have the potential upside looking at a guy like Cody Latimer, um, because I think he has the range and the the catch radius and even the hands. His hands are ten inches, um, and I think he can have that upside potential that looks like Latimer. Now. He, he had drop. He had drop issues early in his um, in camp. He had drop issues on tape through seventeen and eighteen. Uh, 
coach Josh Gaddis, offensive coordinator for the Michigan Wolverines, had a great was on a great podcast recently. He basically outlined three reasons for cat for drops at all levels, and it's either basically poor hand position, poor eyes, or poor body position. His poor most of his drops were because of poor body position and kind of like an inconsistency at the catch point of getting his hands together. And people may say that's so basic. Why doesn't everyone do it? Because catching the ball, that literally is one of the biggest things that separates wide receivers is the ability to catch the ball. So, but it's for him, for me, it's not his, or for what I saw on tape, it's not his, it's not his eye discipline. It really wasn't his hands. because His hands are big. It was his body position through the catch point. And I think part of that can kind of be improved a little bit and can be improved if you're around more professional, you're around professionals that are a lot better than you um, at doing that. Like the giants have now, uh, so I'm looking for that type of improvements that way. I don't think that or that type of improvement um, throughout camp. Um, you know, guys can kind of knock him for you know within the route stem. You know, he's not, you know, he's not the most fluid guy. He's, his ability to sink his hips is, I would call it adequate. But if, for me, for for if you're running a deep post, I absolutely think he has the suddenness and the and the and the, the real danger there uh, to to threaten those defenses and can kind of fill a void. Uh, maybe if it's only temporary for a season and, and then see what his ceiling looks like after a year. So I definitely see more than just, um, oh, look, I think he could be the, the fourth wide receiver on this team for sure. Um, you know, maybe not on early downs because he's not a great blocker uh, and he's by far the worst blocker in, on, in this group. But uh, you know, going forward, I think that, that, you know, that there's upside there um, based upon his speed and, and we'll see what happens. It's interesting that, because as far as playing time goes, you know, I think a lot for a lot of these rookies, it, it's a lot about just, you know, can they trust you within the scheme to know what you're going to do on every play and to not make a mistake? And that's something I think will come with time for Slayton. But I, and I also think eventually he's kind of more of a fit for the offense with Daniel Jones rather than the offense with Eli Manning, you know, based just on what we expect the offense to look like with Jones versus Manning. But one thing I saw when I've about when I've uh, done my, you know, my best to try to evaluate what I have, you know, the limited games I have of Slayton is in a better than expected Nick second and third gear. And I know we talk about that second and third gear with Evan Ingram, something he has, but it's something I saw in the bowl game. It's something I saw more from his 2017 games with Slayton. It's that ability to break away from defenders. Is that something you saw as well with Slayton? Is that something that kind of to get you a little bit excited about with, you know, as it fits the Giants scheme? Yeah. And you know what? And that's a good point to bring up because it's, I'm probably not explaining this like the best way, but basically he doesn't have the tools to get open, but he has the recovery where if he gets knocked on a second and third stride against an, against off coverage, maybe the guy's playing like a cover two-ish depth at five to six yards, he has the raw ability to basically turn on the Jets from there and play through that contact and almost come off better than he did, at, than almost as if he had a clean release. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely – I see him as someone with, with talent, with – since with if you if you added basically t- fundamentals to his talent, he would have, he he could absolutely do that and do that on a pretty consistent basis because it's pretty effortless speed as a glider. You know he's got good forward lean. He opens up his hips pretty well. You know you you don't he doesn't struggle to get vertical. And 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 a good comparison is 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 if you watch Corey Coleman and we'll have the tape for for preseason. If you see him on deep routes, it's definitely more of a struggle. It doesn't mean that one's necessarily better than the other. It's just it's just watching movement skills. And and I definitely like uh, Slayton's movement there. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that because he's also somebody who tested out athletically well, not just in the forty yard dash, but in kind of the explosive drills, the vertical, the broad jumps. And you know, I think when you're taking a chance on a wide receiver the, on the third day of the draft, you should always be prioritizing this kind of skill set 
over, you know, production or some other things at the collegiate level, because this is the type of thing that can be honed in with coaching. And, and you know, he's someone to definitely get excited about. But as we move forward, Nick, from that remainder of the wide receiver corps, you know, including veterans like Russell Shepard, Benny Fowler, who you touched on, some of the young guys like Alonzo Russell, Reggie White Jr., Alex Wesley. Um, is there anyone else who stands out and, and, you know, fans need to keep an eye on moving forward? Uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. I've not gotten a chance to look at the rookies just because, you know, Reggie White and the Monmouth tape at the FCF level is kind of tough to come by. Right. I know I've seen the highlights, but, you know, for me to comment, I'd, I'd want to see at least a couple games. Um, I was most I was most pleasantly surprised when actually watching a couple games of Benny Fowler this morning. And, um, you know, his there's a reason why he's on teams this late in his career. Um, right. And you know, his, he, he has solid ability in his release to, to win against press coverage. Um, and, you know, is he the best route runner? No, but that ability to win early, you know, basically the way I would frame it for, for fans is that basically Golden Tate is a, is a much better version of him, but that's why Fowler got so many snaps last year because you have a guy who could be in, who could be at X, who could be at Z pretty interchangeably. He played in the slot, you know, every so often. Uh, so he's pretty versatile. He blocks pretty well, doesn't shy from physicality. And, and that brings up one last point I would just make about that instead of, you know, me kind of guessing on guys I haven't watched. I think the blocking component of this group, of this group, is absolutely critical, and um, not just because you have one of the best rookie running or second year running backs now in the backfield. I think it's more so because of what they run so often within inside zone to the right. two minute surface to the weak side. That backside Z receiver, even if he's not motioned in towards the, you know, how many times did fancy the Z wide receiver motioned in really close? Oh, to block. Yep. Yeah, so like it, that position, you know, we know that we know that Shepard can do it well. We know that Shepard can slice block and cross the formation and take out a defensive yeah. end, or go to the second level. And that level, you know, he he helped. He helped. Um, he absolutely helped uh, Barkley with some big runs. I think it's it's a consistency factor there that is that is massively key to making this offense more efficient in 2019 or to keep it as efficient as it was in the, in the run game at least. And yeah, you know, Slayton has a little bit of hurdle to go there. I think Coleman's got a big hurdle to go there. Yeah. Um, the, re the rest of the guys really are pretty, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty feisty the rest of the group, right? You know, like, and they're, they're not afraid of contact. I think that's going to be a big part of kind of something fun to watch. And the reason why I bring this up is a lot of evaluators and the media and, and, you know, I would, I think it would depend on a team-by-team -team basis. They kind of don't even look at the wide receiver to do that at the college level because most most oftentimes they're not asked to do it. Um, I just think it's really big in today's NFL. You you need those guys to be versatile. you got to have them, them to be interchangeable on the outside, and they need to be able to block. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you bring that up because within this scheme and within what the Giants want to do, as far as you said, from not only the blocking team but also their offensive philosophy shift going into 2019 with Barkley becoming the focal point, and obviously, you know, eventually moving to Daniel Jones and that offense that takes advantage of space in a horizontal game. I think that, you know, it's going to become even more important to have really good blockers on the perimeter. And, you know, as you said, when they motion back and, and, all, and all those kind of things at the Z wide receiver position from this wide receiver corpse. And that could be the difference in playing time when it goes past Sterling Shepard and Golden Tate, two guys who we know can get that job done. And the Giants feel confident in regards to that. So on that note, Nick, let's move on to the tight ends. And we're going to start here with Evan Ingram. And in games that Odell Beckham Jr. was out, Evan Ingram, Sterling Shepard, and Saquon Barkley dominated from a total raw target standpoint. You know, over 90% of the targets, just everything funneled through these three players. Ingram was my breakout pick in Shermer's offense for 2018. I wrote about him in August. But, you know, in my opinion, a low hit to his knee in week three pretty much derailed his entire 2018 season as far as I'm concerned. It was never the same when he first came back. 
And then he immediately in practice re-injured his hamstring, or I'm sorry, injured his hamstring while trying to compensate for the injury, in my opinion. Um, but he was utilized, um, as I expected, during those final four games of 2018. And personally, I don't think he was even playing at 100% during those eight games. So in your opinion, Nick, is the breakout finally coming in 2019 based on what we saw in those four games without Beckham? Uh, <laughs> it could. Um, I, I think that you have a betweener in terms of height, weight, and profile, and it kind of gets into how much you're going to commit to him being an off-the-ball tight end or move him around the formation um, from both a motion and – Basically, the whole point is, is to, in my opinion, is to is when he's faced against basically an overhang defender that's close to him, he, he I would want to limit those number of snaps. So you want to help him get open, help him get off the line of scrimmage. We right. saw improvement in a single move release over the year, which was good. Um, definitely, uh, definitely pick up, and you need to see more improvement there. Um, I think that people like to get on him with his hands. I think he had a couple drops last year, but it wasn't not nearly as prevalent as it was in previous years. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that the breakout can be there, but I think it's a, I think it's, it's not just oh he's used incorrectly, so he should be. It just you just fix that and you're good. I think it's look if you're gonna run if you're gonna run an offensive scheme where you like to run double YY, meaning you like to run overload with two tight ends next to each other, and that's a foundational part of your running game, which the tape in 2018 absolutely shows that. You know, I don't think he's your tight end. I don't think he's the guy who should be in there every down doing that. Now, if you're gonna, if you want a sniffer type tight end slash really more of an H back, a guy's gonna move around, can move off ball, and I think he absolutely can be your guy because, you know, he's he's dangerous if given a free release. Um, I just think it kind of has to get there, and I'm not really sure if it will. So I'm a, I'm a little, I'm waiting for that because, like you, I thought there was gonna be a big jump last year, and there simply wasn't. Um, and I'm wondering if. I'm wondering if Shermer, you know, wants more of a guy who's a bona fide two-way threat in the blocking game, um, and and that's where you know I'm not saying he has to get a lot better in blocking because I think he has limitations as being undersized. Uh, it's just one of those things where you know I think that it's it's a matter of maybe now they run more of that of that Y off like I'm describing, and and he kind of stands out a bit more and, and improves his route running that type of thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I do think while you know. I may not be as low as you on his 2018 season just because I, I am chalking up a lot to that injury. I believe that it was a rough injury, sprained MCL. You know, that's really tough to come back from. But at the same time, like you said, there are aspects of his game that I wouldn't say necessarily need to improve, but we just need to see more of. Um, so we'll see if that happens in 2019. I mean, obviously, down the stretch run of that four-game stretch where the Giants averaged 25.7 points, and that included getting shut out one of those four games. So obviously, as you can tell, they scored 40, 30, 35, and uh, 27, I believe, in those in those three other games uh, during that final four-game stretch. Ingram was a big part of the offense. He was used on, you know, as a as a runner on end-around type plays, and he was obviously used in spots where they can get him to kind of where they can feature that second or third gear. So we'll see how the offense is designed this year. They've obviously made a lot of additions uh, in addition to him, you know, by bringing in golden tape, by getting rid of, or I should say changes, by getting rid of Beckham. So I'm still interested to see how the scheme looks in year two and how it, you know, how Ingram factors into that. But I think I'm probably a, lot, a little bit higher than, than, than you are on Ingram heading into 2019. But we'll move on to uh, a tight end who's currently number two on the depth chart. We'll see if that holds. Um, we're talking about Red Ellison. When the Giants signed Ellison, they expected to kind of get a hybrid tight end. You know, can be a borderline elite blocker and can play the H-back position like he did with the Vikings before signing with the Giants. 
Ellison graded out well as a blocker in his first Giants season, but not as well in 2018. Um, he's also been rarely ut- utilized as anything but an inline tight end. Um, and we haven't seen him in that H-back role. He played with the Vikings at times. So at the same time, though, we have to give uh, we have to give him credit for the fact that Ellison catches everything that comes his way pretty much. I mean, he led the Giants in, in catch rate last year per target with 74% of it was 74% catch rate. Um, and that was consistent with his first season with the Giants as well. And to me, that's pretty impressive. But is 2019 the season where Ellison takes a step forward, or is it the season where he loses snaps, the tight ends currently behind him on the depth chart? Um, and at the same time, is the impact he's making on the field in your mind, Nick, greater than I just gave him credit for? No, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say greater. Um, what's interesting about Ellison is if you go back to him in 15 and 16 in Minnesota with North Turner and uh, basically Shermer as a coach, um, Ellison's used as – he's got a lot of twitch. He's used in the passing game a fair amount. He's, he moves really differently and look age and athleticism. That's one of the, you know, the hardest issues for guys as their career goes on is if they relied on athleticism to basically be the thing that they hang their hat on that often declines with age. It's just the way it goes. Um, and you absolutely see that. So now, you know, is he that player at all here? Absolutely not. Um, and as an inline blocker, like kind of what the, you described in the grading, it's, basically adequate to solid. I think if you're going to have an on-the-ball tight end, you're going to run a lot of inside zone to the two-man surface, so to the weak side of that inside zone. His block is absolutely critical because you do not have a quarterback that's going to threaten the backside, so that defensive end can kind of play how he wants to, and and it's 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 what derailed a lot of the running game last year. Um, Not to just pick on him, it's just it is it's very, very difficult. I think he's he's a he's a I think he's a big part of the team in terms of a veteran presence, but on the team, on the field, I think it's going to be tough because yeah, his hands overall, I had his grade somewhere around adequate to solid, um, which is really all you need for a tight end position. Uh, his route running is just adequate to solid. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about a guy who's trait wise, right. Kind of in the middle, um, the middle area. And, and I'm just struggling to see what he can really hang his hat on to either be a bigger part of the passing game or to be a bigger part of the running, running game and blocking side, um, which I don't think he will be. And yeah, I think that you're going to have, especially as, especially as the tight end position gets kind of revamped like it has been in the, in the college game a bit, you know, the 10 personnel is not seen as much as you would see it, I would say. And I don't know the statistics there. Guys will probably rip me for that. But, you know, you're seeing better tight ends, especially this year come out. Um, and I think that you're going to have a bigger crop of younger guys in the one to three year mix um, that'll, that'll be able to compete on the depth chart for sure. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because obviously with the changing at the tight end position as it translates to the NFL and where Ellison kind of fits in all that, I I am also, I'm with you. I am also a little surprised to see kind of, you know, where things change for him versus how he was used in Minnesota versus how he's being used uh, with the Giants. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's just the fact that he's just not the same athletic, uh, is not the same player from the athleticism standpoint as he was. Either way though, Nick, I think, you know, moving forward, he probably will make this roster for this season because obviously he's a guy who Pat Shermer, you know, is a big fan of. He loves his work ethic. He loves what he brings to the team off the field. Um, and he even likes, you know, how he plays on the field. Even if it might not be, he might not be the most talented player, he's the way he's playing, Shermer likes. Now, having said that, as we move forward on this roster, the Giants will save a ton of cap space by releasing him next offseason. They can save... $5 million, uh in cap space by releasing him in, with a very minimal dead cap. So I don't see him making this team beyond this year, but I do believe he will make this team for this year. But if there's any chance he doesn't make this team and is a surprise roster cut this September, the reason I believe uh, it will happen is 
the player we're going to touch on next, Nick, and that's the only rookie who caught our attention more than Slayton with the A's, and that's C.J. Conrad, the rookie undrafted free agent uh, tight end. Or, I'm sorry, the only rookie, I should say, not receiver. The rookie uh, free agent tight end, undrafted, out of Kentucky. Um, in my opinion, if not for a medical condition that sent him home from the combine, and obviously a little bit of an injury history at Kentucky, he would have been drafted. Um, instead, the Giants got him undrafted after the draft. And by the end of OTAs, he was already seeing some first-team reps after, you know, dominating in a sense, at least in red zone drills, with Daniel Jones in the second-team offense. In your opinion, Nick, based on what you've seen, can Conrad emerge as the number two behind Ingram in 2019, or do you see him as more of a long-term project? Uh, I think he can emerge. I think he can be the guy um, in that position. Uh, you know, have not seen a ton of his tape, but saw two games from 18. And, uh, man, he's pretty fluid. He's pretty athletic. You know, he was used as, he was used as an H-back in the sniffer role, um, basically offline of scrimmage and kind of a movable piece in that Kentucky offense. Um, you know, against some larger-sized defensive ends, he was able to anchor and pass pro. Um, he was able to, you know, I don't think he was a big mover of guys in the running game. Um, but, you know, I think that after a few games and a good amount of exposure, um, you know, he can absolutely be at Ellison's level. And I think that where the difference is, is in the past game, he's really good. Um, he's got good change direction for a guy his size. He's, you know, look, it's, it's, there's a lot to like when you look at these games. I mean, it's he's really pretty athletic. Um, he's, he's got pretty good route running. Even though guys kind of knocked him on his route running. Um, I think that he's got a little bit of lower body stiffness, but other than that, I think he's okay. He's, he's pretty solid at the catch point. Uh, he's able to make stabs. But he's got pretty good radius. He only has nine and a quarter inch hands, but you know, he's, I think they're actually pretty, pretty good. And, you know, I think it's a guy that, you know, I'm not saying he's like a Dallas Goddard type, but you know, he, he's, he, there's more to him than just a guy who's going to be a roster spot. And look, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what, what is going to happen with him health wise, but if that, if he can get past that, I mean, this is a massive win. And I think he's tight end too for the, for the giants come like week, you know, six or seven. I completely agree with you, Nick. I feel the same way when I watch him, I'm mostly just, and I love that Dallas Goddard comparison. Obviously we're not comparing him to Dallas Goddard. who's a early second round pick from the Eagles. He's not at that level, but I see a little bit of that too because he is surprisingly really smooth after the pass and in those change of direction skills. And that's something that could really fit the Giants' offensive team well. And I know you agree with, agree with that long term, Nick. And I think that it could be shorter term than, than any of us expect if, of course, if Conrad you know learns the offense quick enough and if they feel comfortable that he can <laughs> fit within this team for uh, the Giants in 2019 uh, and, you know, know where he should be on the field at all times. And I'm with you. I'm very high on Conrad. I believe this could be one of their best pickups from the undrafted group in a long time for this roster. Um, so I'm excited to see what he has in store for the Giants during training camp. But we'll move forward. And before we get dive into the questions, I wanted to touch on a player who was re-signed uh, after kind of surprising some people in 2018. And that's Scott Simonson, who maybe he didn't jump, jump off the page, but he did catch what was thrown his way. He held his own as a blocker. He also had some drop passes. And, and, and I'm sorry, not a drop pass. He also had a, little, a few more penalties than I wanted to see. Nick, what are your expectations for Simonson and his role in 2019? Uh, you know, he can compete for the tight end for the tight end position, for the backup tight end position. You know, he's a, he's a local kid. He's an RBC kid. Um, you know, I think that when you have these guys that – a lot of times scouting um, bubble roster players, you know, people kind of scoff at or roll their eyes at, but there are, it, it, there are aspects to it. And one of the things that you kind of get taught um, is that as, as evaluators is like, you know, 
can the guy hang his hat on one thing? You know, can he provide that one thing that you know you need him for and you know he's good at? Because even if he gets cut from this team, he can be picked up by other teams. I think that's a key thing for him to find this 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 uh, this camp for for Simonson, whether it be on the blocking side or whether it be in the passing game. Because what I my notes on him from the regular season is is kind of like he's a big time gray man, meaning he's not very he's not he doesn't really distinguish himself on either on either facet. You know, he loses kind of quickly in against against bigger defensive ends uh, in both the run and and in pass pro um you know you had a couple of assignment issues um that you could clearly see in, in pass pro so you know i get that things are kind of you know maybe the second season can help him with that and you know and as a route runner i think that it's one of those things where you know there wasn't a ton there um so if, if he can if he can distinguish himself either way you think he can maybe look at the tight end three spot but i just see way more upside from a guy like conrad than you do from simonson i don't think it's with simonson i don't think it's establishing the floor i think he saw the floor um i think that yeah there are rules for for that guy but right now i think it's about selling teams on on the upside and when that one yeah. thing he can do to kind of distinguish himself completely agree with you there nick i mean it's more of this the upside issue what's the upside there what can he do better than than you know other players at his position at the NFL level, and I guess we'll find out more of that. But he's still obviously young and early in his career with the Giants, so there could be a jump coming, like you would expect from players who are more familiar with the playbook and more familiar with the scheme. But that's something still to be determined. I'm with you. I think if the Giants end up keeping three tight ends, he'll be the odd man out. But I do believe they'll eventually settle on keeping four uh, with all, all four of these guys making the roster. Um, but on that note, Nick, let's dive into some of the questions from the listeners. Uh, we're a little light on questions today. Not no, nothing to be alarmed about. It's 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 July. There's it's the early July, I should say. There's literally nothing going on in the NFL right now, um, and things will pick back up as far as that goes. But we do appreciate all the questions that do come in every day. So we're going to start by featuring probably, in our opinion, at least probably the best question we've gotten on this podcast, in my opinion, in quite some time because it's going to you know help us dive really deep into the into the offensive scheme and how things are going to work for the Giants in 2019. And this one comes from Marcus, and he asks, how was Daniel Jones with pre-stat motions? Eli Manning struggled with it mightily, and it pretty much gave up uh, Pretty much gave up after the first quarter of the season. I guess he's referring to the Giants with regards to that. Did they incorporate it at Duke? And is this going to be a staple uh, in the NFL offense moving forward? He believes it's going to be a staple in the NFL offense moving forward, and he doesn't want the Giants to get left behind. So I'll let you take the floor here, Nick. Yeah, so motions at college, and this is a, this is a question that I got, and it's something that you kind of like, you know, you have the answer, you know, you can't really explain it in on Twitter, at least you don't want to do it just there. And more importantly, when it's asked specifically about Daniel Jones, you don't want to just throw out generics or throw out what you think you saw. You actually want to go back and look. So I actually charted two games. Um, I charted the uh, the Vatek game and I charted the Clemson game because I knew he, they would motion more in the Clemson game and I kind of knew why. But anyway, you're talking about an offense that um, at Duke that that I would say on average a handful of times they use motion. Um, they use motion more against Clemson, specifically against Clemson's cover zero looks with no middle field safety and all DBs below the hard deck. It's called below, which is usually seven to eight yards off the line of scrimmage. For most uh, for most offenses, and there they used um, they used jet they used jet motion um, nine times that game. So nine times out of sixty snaps, you're not talking about as much as an NFL offense. So immediately, people may ask, okay, well, what does that say about the quarterback? A um, couple things have to be given for context when looking at college offenses. It's not that they're simple. It's not that they're dumb. It's not that they're X, Y, and Z. It's just that they're different. In college. 
let's just start really basically. If you run a lot of motions, what can't you do? You can't really run tempo. So right off the bat, a lot of college offenses run tempo. So you're going to see less motion because of that. You're going to see less motion because of what the defense is doing. Most, a lot of defenses, particularly defenses that Duke faced in the ACC, and you see this a lot in really the SEC, uh, is they run quarters. So they run cover four or really quarters, what it's called. Quarters, motion against quarters is in many cases not really as effective um, because of the elements of the defense, which you could spend a podcast talking about. And there's no really better way to look at it than go to the Big 12. And motion is very rarely used other than the H-back, sniffer, running back type motion. You don't have wide receiver motions nearly as much. Um, For getting back to Duke, Duke used motion to basically change the leverage of the field from one side to the other and attack that quarters flat defender. So quarters is four deep, three under for simplicity's sake. That under third defender to the wide side of the field is what Duke tried to attack by out leveraging him with motion. That's kind of the main shtick, I would say, for why you would use motion if you're Duke, at least why they, why they were using motion. They only use like jet sweep. I only saw it one time in two games, actually. Um, so all these things kind of go in. So it gets into, does this quarterback have the ability because we didn't see him do it at college as much. Does he have the ability to do it at the next level? Because he's going to be asked to do it more. Now, why is he asked to do it more? There's less quarters. There's more cover two and cover three. And the motion does different things. There's different reasons for motion. There's more of an indicator of man zone in uh, man zone at the next level with motion. Against a quarters defense, that is not really the case. You don't really get an indication whether you're going to see a man or zone because if, if the trailer follows that motion across. So that aspect, I think Daniel Jones, my confidence in Daniel Jones to handle the motions at the next level come from his overall command of the offense at a pre, from a pre-snap basis. So you can say, what are the examples there? Number one, the pre-snap RPO basis. He was reading sixth and seventh defenders very, very, very frequently. Uh, he was reading those defenders pretty quickly when they run, when they w- would run tempo. Um, he was reading leverage of defenders and understanding what the probable coverage was based upon the pre-snap leverage, very, very, very frequently and very, very effectively. By them, by the way, you know, uh, we cited on on the Daniel Jones podcast, we cited Daniel Dan Orlovsky breaking him down and saying, "Hey, in the pre-snap phase, he was very, very good. In the post-snap phases, where he struggled at times, when things look different, that's a different conversation." Um, so, you know, do I think that? Daniel Jones can handle what the Giants will ask him to do from a motion perspective, which most of the motions in the Giant offense are going to be planned as part of the as part of the, the play. You know, you're going to have Golden Tate. You know, one of the biggest motions that you saw with, with Golden Tate is he would basically motion across the formation from, from Z to either the other side in a bizarro sweep look to gain leverage or to cause the defense to do different things, or to then what he on the motion on the same side of the field, he was actually gaining leverage on the outside to run a quick out route. Daniel Jones can more can can handle that type of plan motion very very easily. I would say the thing where it gets kind of more complex and where I think he can totally handle it is if there's simple motions that happen at the NFL level um, to help you, uh, to help attack men in the box. So if if you if the Giants were an eleven personnel and you have three wide receivers right and you have let's say you have one tight end so you have six men on the line of scrimmage you have seven gaps to attack to account for those seven gaps. Um, need to be accounted for by seven guys, unless if you're going to steal a gap or one lineman's going to steal a gap. But basically, everyone's playing a one-gap system. So the question is, how do you deal with that seventh defender? The Giants would motion in a man in 
the wide receiver in to block that seventh defender. Right. That, you know, he can absolutely handle that. That's that's it's a very basic motion that 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 happens when you're running inside zone. I get back to it. Why don't the colleges do that as much? Because they're more frequently tagging plays, tagging passing plays to those running plays where they're dealing with that seventh defender in other ways. They're saying, hey, if you're going to sink that seventh defender in the box, we're going to throw the ball. Like, you know, if, we're, if you even have a sixth guy near the box, we're going to read him after the snap. The RPO game is much more prevalent to deal with that seventh defender. So in that battle, he absolutely can win because he was just doing it in a different way. So I think this gets into a question of, when you don't see him doing something in college, are we or do we sometimes focus on scouting the helmet too much versus understanding what the player is being asked to do? And his pre-snap laundry list was pretty was pretty deep, and you saw him actively changing things on a pretty active on a pretty frequent basis before. So I'm okay with him there, and I think that this is something where you know is he gonna there's it's just different, and I think it's it's something he's gonna excel at. Yeah, and I think you're right about that. And what gets me excited about that, Nick, is that if it is something he can excel at. Does that also kind of play into what we talked about on the Daniel Jones podcast from a few weeks ago, where the sense that, you know, eventually once they move Nick to this offense with Jones as a starter, it can create more space in the like more horizontal space to based on his athleticism as a quarterback. And obviously based on what Barkley has done and what we saw Barkley do with an athletic quarterback at Penn state. And does that kind of, you know, lead you to believe that maybe the pre-snap motion will come an even bigger part of their offense because you can use that misdirection or just use that extra space you create in in conjunction with Jones' athleticism, with Barkley's athleticism in the backfield from kind of the shotgun or however you're doing it. Does that make sense the way I broke that down? Is that something you can see kind of becoming an even bigger part of the Giants' offense when Jones comes into the offense? Sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think you could, and and also because of Golden Tate as a bona fide right. uh, uh, end around threat, or even a guy you know down the road farther like Slayton as an end around threat as a speed threat. Um, you know, one of the, I think this kind of gets into this backdoors into why did the Giants do this so much this year? Why, 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 why not? And I think that what you're what you have at the helm is a quarterback who is very good at identifying things before the snap and doesn't and, and, and struggled with change. So when you use jet motion yep. against too high defense, you often see teams spin or what's called spinning. They sink a, one of those basically most times the play side of the motion, they sink one of those safeties down in the box and they change coverage. Well, what you're doing is you're taking as the quarterback goes back in his drop, what he, where he thought he, what the defense he thought he was having was facing is changing. And that change leads to hesitation. That change screws up the timing. And a lot of quarterbacks have the ability to pass it. I didn't see the giants consistently get past that. And that's where I think Shermer kind of wanted everything as straightforward as possible from the snap. You know, did it really hurt them? I think where it hurt them was like kind of what you're describing, actually. It is what you're describing. You know, if you use jet motion, can that widen defensive ends um, on either side, running it away from the motion or to the motion for Barkley? Yeah, you're going to create more space, a thousand percent, because they have to respect that. You know, a lot of right. people a lot of people make that point like, oh, like no one goes for jet motion. No one goes for jet motion until the one player hits it for 25 yards and the defensive end has yeah. to widen. So if you do that just enough, that it, everyone has their gap responsibility. And if you create more space, yeah, you, you're going to create a more efficient offense to answer your question. Yeah, and I think to me that's kind of the biggest upside I see when the Giants do make that transition from Joe. I know it's very broad the way I just explained it, but 
you kind of did a good job there, Nick, of kind of taking that on a more specific level and more in-depth. And obviously, we'll have a chance to see even more and go even further into depth when the Giants do make that decision to go to Jones over Manning. But again, that's kind of where I see the most upside with regards to where this Giants offense is headed once Jones becomes the quarterback. But we'll move on um, to another question from this one from Andre, who asked, is there any merit to this? Shermer has a less than mediocre career from a win standpoint as a head coach. And he only won five games in 2018. If the Giants finish the first four weeks of the season, one and three, will he start uh, Jones in week five as the seat will get, as his, the coaching hot seat will get very warm and a new QB may be the only way to save his career. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that because it's the Giants organization, he may have more leeway than we know. And we talked about that actually I think on the last podcast, but yeah, if, if I was a normal second year coach and I had a five win season and I just drafted a quarterback and I was one and three and I didn't start the, the, you know, the rookie quarterback that had to, that plan had to have been established already with the, with the, with the general manager and everyone involved, because if you don't, yeah, you're, you're kind of, you know, if you, if you have a, another five and 11 season and you're in the third year, you know, I think you're you're worried about your job. So absolutely. Yeah, I know. We actually dove into this one on the last podcast, but we'll dive back into it because I, I think Andre's kind of new to the podcast. So basically the way that about me and Nick Seed is we're both a lot more bullish on Jones starting earlier in the 2019 season than others are. And a lot of other people have talked about after the bye week. I don't see that happening because it would be a road game against the Chicago Bears in, in late November and probably disgustingly windy cold conditions. But and, and, you know, if you start him too much further after that, you're only getting a three or four game sample size. So I do believe it could happen sooner than expected. And a lot of it is the reason that, that you mentioned there, Andre. I do believe Shermer is in a different spot than Dave Gettleman as far as keeping his job. Gettleman gets to see out this Daniel Jones experiment. Shermer may not get to see it out. And, you know, he needs to get going on this sooner than – sooner than if, if the Giants are still losing games with Eli Manning as the starter, there's going to be a push to get him going earlier than – most people expect. And I think that he will have that option. I do believe that. And again, Andre, this is totally, um, I guess I would call it a guesstimation based on, based on the context I have in front of me. But I do believe that when Gettleman said he had a tough, honest conversation with Eli, he wasn't telling him, look, you did this wrong, this wrong, or that wrong in 2018. He was telling him, we're going to bring you back, but you're not guaranteed anything. And we will bench you in the middle of this at any point, not in these exact words, but you know, we may bench you if we feel that you are not giving us the best option to win. And I think Eli's okay with that at this point in his career. And I think it won't be as much of a, won't cause as much of a stir now because it's happened already when Ben McAdoo did it. And, you know, it's going to happen for the number six overall pick, not a veteran retread like Geno Smith, who's now getting looks from the XFL. So, you know, I think that it's a very different situation. So I do believe there is merit to answer your question. And I think we'll find out as time goes. Rob asks, I'm hearing some buzz about UDFA, CJ Conrad. And I'm wondering what you and Nick thought about him. Rob, obviously, we could we could touch on the question again. But if you missed it, we did break down CJ earlier in the podcast. So you can just kind of roll back and listen to it then. So I don't think we need to dive back into that. Um, and then finally, Pat Chamberlain asked, it's not a wide receiver question, but a pass catcher question. Do you see the Giants making better use of Evan Ingram this year? In my view, he was misused and underutilized last year. Um, and that was criminal. Nick, is there anything else you want to touch on this? I know we broke down Ingram kind of in depth earlier. Is there anything else you wanted to get on here? Yeah, I'm just I'm a little different for his misuse just because okay. just because if the guy if if he if he can't win early, you can't bump him outside. 
and and then expect him to win. And I, you know, I wrote an article pitching him to be an H back and, and put him in the backfield to give him more space. But that's more just like throwing a dart at a wall. Um, I think this is a it's a matter of the player improving, and then the you know the use kind of you know kind of fine tuning to the player that he is. But I think he's got to make that jump himself. I don't think it's something where you know he goes to. Um, you know, he goes to like the Saints, and all of a sudden it all changes because yeah, you yeah. you bump him to the slot, and it's like okay, great, but he still has to find that way to win at the catch point, use his body better, and and use the fundamentals and you know to get open, you know, frequently because he doesn't have that overall crazy ability. And again, I'm, I'm just mentioning giant receivers to give people context, like Golden Tate to just find his way through and you know make catches in the two to three, two to four yard range. If he could do that, I think you would see the ball a lot more. You know, it's just one of those things. And I I, I I'm not of the camp that I think Eli was always going to one, you know, was kind of centered on OBJ. I think that he was looking for guys, anyone that he could trust and, and likes to distribute the ball pretty frequently and widely and, and would do that for him for sure. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you there, Nick, but I am curious on one thing, Nick, and this is something that I've always been interested on. And I want to know your take on it. Is it more based on scheme? Is it more based on the quarterback? Or is it more based on Ingram? And when the Giants drafted Ingram, I assume that some there would be a new addition to the offense that, quite frankly, we hadn't seen since Martellus Bennett was the tight end for that one season. Uh, I believe that back in 2012. And that's a vertically attacking tight end. I mean, Ingram is a guy who has that 4-4 speed, and he can get to that second and third gear. I know it takes him some time, but he, when he gets there, he's going. And, you know, you see some offensive schemes and some offenses like the Chiefs, for example, with Travis Kelsey, just utilizing him as a vertical attacking tight end. Is there a reason why we kind of haven't seen that vertical game from Ingram is more is more my question. Is that something where, you know, he's being misutilized or underutilized or misused or whatever you want to call it? Or is it more on the quarterback or is it more on him? Where do you see that? Uh, a mixture. It sounds like a lame answer, but a mixture of all three. Um, you know, does Pat Shermer have the most vertical stems for for tight ends in that position? You know, I don't have the answer, but you see him down the field enough. I think it gets back to his ability to get off the ball and to get into that position correctly. And what you often see is that, yeah, you know, like, okay, let's just, let's just be more specific when he, when they're running a snag concept. So the tight end or the, usually the three wide receivers running a corner route. One of the other two wide receivers is running like a, what's called a snag route or a sit route where he comes back over and sits down on the ball. And the third wide receiver is running basically a shoot route to the outside. It's a cover three beater, but, it beats a lot of things. You know, that guy running that corner route that can be that tight end, he's got to get a clean release off the line of scrimmage, which doesn't mean just off the line, but through the second tier where he can't get collisioned. One of the biggest issues with, with Engram is that if he gets collision, his body control and his ability to play through that is, is not there yet. So you're not really throwing your that that vertical stem into the corner route is more to open up the thing underneath because you know the wide the quarterback may not trust that guy to win to win that early because that's the way that the, the scheme is kind of designed, um, and we're not win that early, but but beat that guy that that man or zone consistently. So I just think it's a confidence thing with as well as the fact that the guy's not doing it. And and if he would if he did it, I think he would he would get the ball. And you know again, you could criticize Manning a little bit, but I think it's I think it's pretty even that you know if 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 you're open and if you create that separation. Manning's going to deliver the ball to you. I, I think that that is what you're seeing, it, and that's what that's where the lack is coming. And and overall, yeah, is it? I'm even thinking of like the throwback game that the Giants run a lot of, where they run play action, and he leaks out the, the tight end, leaks out the backside, and goes to the back end. You know, when Engram was throwing those balls, he had a couple tough drops, 
And it doesn't take much to derail offenses from coming back from that. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's where you're kind of seeing it, where it's like, it's kind of like there's always something that comes up. And, and, and that's what's that. I think that's what's holding back more than anything specific for, Hey, he's got to be schemed into this offense better. Um, you know, I think what's, what's hard, I think is if you had, if you, let's just say you had one, you had one, three personnel, you had three tight ends in the field and you had two bona fide blockers. Then if you could move Ingram around all of a sudden, it's like, Holy shit. Holy, like, what do we do? You know, cause they're a right. real run threat. The, the the front seven, front six doesn't really oh, – there's going to be front seven. It's going to be base defense at that point. They don't know what to do, and they probably have to throw a linebacker on that guy Ingram, on Ingram, right? That becomes a different dynamic. That's a that's not Ingram's fault, though, right? So the Giants don't have those – that they don't have that tight end grouping. So getting to that may open up other things for him, but it's not necessarily like just, 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 just pure scheme. I think that's fair, and I think that touches on a point that we're not going to get on this podcast, Nick, but I do believe that – a priority for the Giants moving forward next offseason, obviously this one's all but over as far as acquisitions go, is improving the tight end position. I think it's vital for the scheme. I don't think they have the group that they want right now. Now, that could all change if C.J. Conrad is really, 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 as you know, is really, truly the real deal. And obviously a lot of that would have to be Ingram taking that jump too. But it's something I want to see moving forward from this roster. But on that note, Nick, that's all we have for today. And our fans, thank you again for tuning in. We really do appreciate you guys helping us grow this podcast. With every passing podcast, we've seen a larger number of downloads and a larger number of you guys jumping in. And that's a testament to you guys who are really helping make the show happen by getting involved, asking us questions, talking to us on Twitter, letting us know what you want to hear. And it's the dead of the NFL offseason, and we're seeing you know great results. So that's getting me really excited about what's to come for this season. When we actually have some tape to work with, we're going to obviously have NFL Game Pass on us again, me and Nick. We're going to break down those preseason games and the regular season. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait for that. But again, if you guys do enjoy the show, please, please do us a favor and head to your iPhones, head to your i wherever you guys get iTunes. And please, not only uh, rate and subscribe to the podcast, if you've already done that, just hit that download button on each new episode because that makes all the difference for us. And as always, if you want to follow our other work, obviously I'm doing a ton of writing for 24-7 Sports. Nick is doing writing on his own and a lot of also game film breakdowns on Twitter, which is awesome. You can catch us on Twitter. You can find me at Dan Schneier NFL, D-A-N-S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R-N-F-L. And then obviously Nick at T-Manic21, where again, he's doing some awesome work there. And I've actually tried to do my best to retweet it out so more people can see it. But this is the type of stuff that need that Giants fans need to get their eyeballs on. So on that note, guys, thanks again for tuning in. And stay tuned with us for the month of July. We're going to be hitting some other groups. We're going to do defensive backs. We're going to dive into Pat Shermer's scheme, which is an episode I'm personally super excited for. So keep it tuned in on the Big Blue Banter podcast and have a great summer. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.